Morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. I was uh, talking with Rachel, uh, my daughter, earlier, and um, ooh. I'll leave it there. Okay, sorry. We're both in trouble this morning, aren't we? <laughs> I was uh, reminded that uh, Abbey Church will be a teenager soon. Did you know that? Because it was 1999 that Abbey Church started, 13 years ago in September. Seems like about 13 months ago, but uh, 13 years it will be. Uh, So that's great, and it's good to see the church growing and developing, and uh, glad to play a small part in that. If you have your Bibles, you might like to have them open at Acts chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the verses that Phil read to us this morning. There's um, a well-known phrase that I'm sure you know. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It's a good motto uh, to keep one persevering in something if you haven't quite got there the first time, to keep on going with it. And uh, as I was preparing for this this morning, I thought, you know, Satan might have even invented that phrase when it came to the early church. He tried very hard to stifle the church at birth, to kill it in its infancy before it could become established, before it could grow. He tried in a number of different ways. He tried through the persecution of the early believers in Acts chapter 4 and 5, where the Jewish authorities tried to suppress by force the early church when the apostles were preaching the good news of Jesus and they... uh, They were taken into custody and they were hounded. So he tried that way to stop the church from growing and developing in its infancy and that didn't work. So then he tried another tack. He tried to work inside the church through hypocrisy and through lies and deceit. The story of Ananias and Sapphira that you've probably looked at recently in the early part of chapter 5. So he tried from external forces, he tried from internal forces. And the passage we've got in front of us this morning, you might almost think, is another attempt by Satan to cause problems. John Stott described that uh, this was to do with squabbling widows trying to distract the leadership. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Satan was trying again to cause problems in the early church in its infancy. And this morning we're going to be looking at that passage um, verse by verse, pretty much as we go through it. But I also wanted to read it from the message paraphrase of the Bible, just to give a little fresh expression of it. So, uh, just listen as I read the message paraphrase. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, Hellenists, towards the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. So the Twelve called a meeting of the disciples. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the Word of God to help with the care of the poor. So, friends, choose seven men from among you whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and we'll assign them this task. 
Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned tasks of prayer and speaking God's word. The congregation thought this was a great idea. They went ahead and chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Then they presented them to the apostles, praying the apostles laid hands on them and commissioned them for their task. The word of God prospered. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Not least, a great many priests submitted themselves to the faith. So, oh, the title's already up there. That's good. We're going to be thinking about three session, sections this morning, and this is the first one. The problem. We're going to be thinking about the problem, the solution, the result, and then one other thing as we come to a conclusion. The problem that's described in verse 1 is twofold. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. There were two parts to the problem. The first part of the problem was really quite a good one. And it was to do with growth. Growth. The church was growing so quickly it was creating problems. And that's a nice thing to have. It's lovely when churches grow. Um, Rachel and I talking, as I, we came across this morning, she said, well, how big is Abbey Church now? And I said, well, it's quite a bit bigger than it was when it started. And that's great. Uh, it's lovely to see the church grow and develop, and that's what the church should be doing. But there were problems as a result of that growth. There was significant growth. The disciples were increasing in numbers in leaps and bounds, we read in the message. But that created another problem, which was this. Grumbling. It was ever thus, was it not, in church? Because the church is made up of people, and people grumble. People complain. You may think it shouldn't be like that in church, and I think it shouldn't be like that in church, but I am sometimes a complainer. I am sometimes a grumbler. Rachel's grinning at me here. Maybe I should change the word sometimes. <laughs> because that's sadly what we do, is it not? Sometimes. And this was a problem. This was a problem for the church. It was a problem for the leadership in the church. Because we read that the food wasn't being distributed fairly. That's what it says. They were widows. Some of the widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. If you go back to Acts chapter 4, verse 35, it tells us that everyone had as much as they needed as the disciples distributed the food. But something somewhere had gone wrong. There was a group of people who were being discriminated against as they understood it. And so they were complaining. But the other part of the problem was not just that they were complaining about that, but I think there was something like this as well. I think there were cultural tensions here because they came from different backgrounds. What we read there as the, um, uh, the Greek, the Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, were, they came from a part of a, the Jewish people who were dispersed from the homeland and who had come back and they were part of the diaspora and so they spoke Greek fluently. 
And they were the ones who felt that they were being discriminated against, against the Hebraic-speaking Jews, the people who lived locally, who were steeped in the culture of the Hebrew way of doing things, from which all of the apostles had come from. And so they felt that there was an unfair discrimination, and it was based really on the fact that you are different to us, and so you don't like us, and so you're not giving us enough. And that's where tensions often come, isn't it? When people misunderstand, and there were some real difficulties there. They thought that the apostles were treating the Greek widows unfairly. It seems very likely, in fact, that the apostles were either direct, uh, probably fairly directly involved, either in literally distributing the food or in deciding who was going to get what and when and how much. Um, Almost certainly, it seems, that was the way of it. Um, Of course, it's very unlikely that the apostles were being deliberately biased and saying, well, those those are a different group over there. We'll treat them slightly differently. I'm sure they weren't doing that deliberately, but something somewhere had gone wrong. Something in the administration had gone wrong. Something in the organization had gone wrong. And uh, I jotted down here that vision and organization rarely go together in the same person. If you know a visionary, they are not so well organized. I don't mean to say they can't be organized, but they're not so well organized. And rarely does vision and organization in one person go together. When I started, when I was uh, being interviewed for the job at Redcliffe, somebody, uh, one of the interviewers, asked me, was I a visionary? I said, no, I'm not a visionary, but I'm one of those people who very quickly catch on to an idea and I try to make it happen. I don't think of myself as a visionary at all, but I know people who are visionaries and they're a joy and a delight and a pain in the neck to work with. <laughs> More than anything, they're a joy and a delight. But, you know, but somewhere on the line, the apostles hadn't quite got themselves together. These were people that Jesus had invested with spreading the good news and that was their burning passion that was their priority and and i don't know whether it got to the point where they said well don't worry let's not worry too much about the food i don't know what was going on but something had broken down but actually it was a bigger problem than that it was a bigger problem than that the problem was that they were being distracted from that which god had particularly given them to do that's what they say um in verse 2, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Not that it's not important, but actually what God's given us to do is this. So that was the problem. But what was the solution? Well, we read about it in verses 2 to 6. And the first thing that happened was that they shared the problem. They shared the problem. Verses 2 to 4. Verse 2 again, the the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That was the problem as they described it to the church at large. As D.L. Moody said, it's better to put ten men to work than to try and do the work of ten men. Some of us try to do the latter and sometimes we, in fact most times we fail. Better to put ten men to work than try to do the work of ten men. And the apostles were saying, we need to give ourselves fully to the main task that God has given us to do, which is to preach the word and to pray. 
in order that the church could be well fed spiritually. Of course it was important that the widows, who otherwise wouldn't have got food from anywhere because of the situation they were in, of course it was important that they received the correct allocation. But they said, no, the most important thing is that we preach the word. It was important that they were well fed physically, but it was more important in one sense that they were well fed spiritually. So what was their proposal? What was their proposal? Was it to appoint some good people? Was it to appoint some practically minded people? Was it to appoint some mature people who would know what they were doing in all of this? Was it to appoint some people who would be good at organization? Was it to appoint some young people who would be very driven and, you know, get things done with a lot of energy that young people have? No. Uh, It may well be that the people that they appointed were all of those things and a mix of them. But actually what it tells us, very simply, is that they were to be people, read verse 3, choose seven men among from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. So having shared the problem, they said, now you go and appoint godly people who will do this job. J.B. Phillips' translation is uh, people who are both practical and spiritually minded. The men to be appointed were to be men of a godly disposition. Indeed, full of God (laughs) and consequently full of wisdom. And we make a very real mistake if we think that somehow practical duties are inferior to obvious spiritual duties. If we think that somehow, you know, this man over here, well, yes, over here, he's an elder, Phil. This man over here is, a, is an important man because he's an elder. And this man over here, I'm going to, well, no, I can't point at the mark. He's another elder. Who, who else leads worship here is not an elder? Oh, okay. Thank you, Paul. This man over here, he's important because he leads worship. And this man over here, Barney at the back there, he's not quite so important because all he does is twiddle knobs and sometimes he puts chairs away. If we think that, we've got it utterly wrong in God's sight. Because each must play their part with the gift that God has given them. You would not want me sitting where Barney is. Technicality doesn't work with me. I, I struggle to put this together. It's a very simple PowerPoint, but you know, I, I just don't do techie stuff. There are other things that I can do, but I wouldn't do that. And it's really important, and I think the apostles were saying this, this is not just about appointing somebody who happens to be good at something. No, look for spiritually minded people to fulfill this role. People who are godly people who are full of wisdom. Did you see um, the description of Stephen in particular? He was a man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and if you look at verse 8, he was full of God's grace and full of God's power. And if you want to put it this way, all he was doing was waiting on tables. But he was a man who was full of God, full of wisdom, full of power, full of God's grace. 
Now, if all you're doing is putting away tables and chairs because you think that's all you've got to do, think again. You are putting away tables and chairs if that's the job that you do here because that's what God wants you to do. Now, there's a sense in which anybody can put away tables and chairs. I understand that. Maybe that's not a good example. But Barney needs to do his job that I couldn't do in a million years, twiddling knobs and making sure things happen properly, in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in him. In just the same way as leaders in the church need to lead with the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives them. And that's really important. I'll come back to that in my conclusion as we come towards an end. And so these were really important appointments. Godly men, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace, full of God's power. And it seems that the apostles uh, had no say uh, in those chosen. That's at least how I read verse 6. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on him. It doesn't seem to me as I read that, that the apostles uh, in any way influenced. Maybe they did, it's difficult to tell, but I don't get the sense that they were influenced, that they actually said to the church, you go, you pray, you think about who you want to do these tasks. This is really important. And so then they did what the apostles were supposed to do. (laughs) They took on their leadership role and they prayed for those who were taking on this task. They commissioned them publicly into God's service. So that's the problem. That was their solution. And they appointed these people who did a great job in serving God in those ways. But what was the result? Well, verse 7 tells us that, doesn't it? The word of God spread... The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The teaching continued, probably redoubled because actually now the apostles were freed up from the routine, important daily tasks to get on with the big picture stuff, if I can put it that way. The the prayer and the teaching, that which they had a particular responsibility for and a particular gift for. So the teaching continued, and as a result of sorting it out in a, in a wise and godly way, we discover that the church was united again, and that there was substantial growth. It's um, interesting that uh, um, the church probably um, chose seven men who were of a Greek background. Did I say that earlier? I can't remember what I did. That's all right. My, my daughter's shaking her head. That's something. She's been listening. It's important to just recognize that. Not everybody thinks necessarily this was the case, but actually the possibility was that they, the, these seven men that were chosen all had Greek names. And it's quite possible that the church said, well, if the problem is actually that, the, that we think the Hebraic Jews are getting the bigger proportion, let's balance that out by choosing seven men who are from a Greek-speaking background. We don't know for sure, but you'd like to think it might be that way. But of course, as a result of the teaching, then there was significant growth. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically, the message puts it. And John Stutt, in his commentary, says this, but of course, (laughs) it's logical that that would happen. The word cannot spread when the ministry of the word is neglected. 
Conversely, when pastors, elders, teachers <clears throat> devote themselves to the word, it spreads. It's a natural result. Of course the word of God is going to spread. Of course the church is going to grow. Because the word of God is being taught faithfully, and there is much prayer, and the consequence is the gospel spreads. Other people get to hear the good news of Jesus. So the problem was growth and grumbling. The solution was to appoint godly men who would fulfill their particular task. And the result was that there was better teaching, more in-depth teaching, and growth as a consequence. Oh yes, and there was persecution. Because it tells us, particularly of Stephen, in verse 9, opposition arose from members of the synagogue of freedmen. It was aimed at Stephen particularly, initially, but the consequence of Stephen coming under pressure was that the church came under pressure, because you'll remember he was the first Christian martyr, and then there was significant opposition, real persecution of the local church, and so the church was scattered, (laughs) and it spread, and it grew, and so Abbey Church is here today as a result of that, all those years ago. Because the word of God continues to spread, and the gospel continues to be shared, and people hear the good news and respond to it. But maybe you'll come back to that next section of the young church when you, uh, if you take up studying in Acts again later. So there was teaching, and there was growth, and there was persecution. So that was the result. Wonderful. This is a really pivotal chapter, in fact, in the book of Acts. It's one of a, a few chapters where the, uh, Luke, the doctor who wrote this um, book, uses to say, and at this moment in time, this happened and the church moved on. And this is one of the significant moments because this needed sorting out. These practical issues needed resolving. But I wanted to finish with one other thing to say to you. And if you'd like to find Romans chapter 12, that would be good. And uh, we're just going to read a few verses from 6 to 8 and then verse 11. I'm breaking into a passage where Paul is speaking about how the Christian people in Rome and uh, through them to us down through the years, ought to be people who live out their faith. And he says this in verse 6, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. And then verse 11, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We touched earlier on the fact that there is no such thing as one area of ministry being any more important than any other area of ministry. In fact, in lots and lots of respects, you can have a church which is spiritually well-led, which is spiritually well-fed, 
and is organizationally a mess, and you won't see much growth. Because actually the organization, the administration, the practicalities of the church are every bit as important at a level as the spiritual. Now, ultimately, of course, the spiritual is what matters. But if actually the church is falling apart, I mean, if, if we turn up this morning and we were due to have communion and there was no bread and wine here, that wouldn't be very helpful, would it? Somebody somewhere needs to bring the bread and wine and put it on the table. It's a tiny, maybe a silly example, but somebody does. Somebody somewhere needs to put the chairs out, otherwise your legs would be tired by now because you'd be standing up. Somebody somewhere needs to turn up and put the lights on. Somebody somewhere needs to practice music. Somebody somewhere needs to set PA up. It has to happen. Otherwise, what we enjoy being together as God's people doesn't work. And you could say, well, what's spiritual about putting chairs out? What's spiritual about bringing bread and wine and putting it on a table? Well, it's this. (laughs) It's because it's what you do as you do it for the Lord. And that's key. And there's no such thing as one area of ministry as being more important than another. But I do want to say this, as we conclude. There is such a thing as fulfilling what God has given you to do with all of the energy that God has given you to do it. Do what you're gifted to do. That's what the apostles were saying. They weren't saying serving at tables is not for us. They were saying what God's given us to do primarily, above all else, is preaching and teaching and prayer. It's not that waiting on tables isn't important, but but that's not what God's gifted us for. And you have to ask yourself, what has God gifted me particularly to do? It might be of a very practical nature. Do it with all the energy that God gives you. It might be teaching. That's why I read these verses from Romans. Whatever it is, do it with all your heart. Because that's what Scripture's about. Do it wholeheartedly. Find out what God wants you to do above anything else and do it. And if you know what it is that God wants you to do more than anything else, make sure that is your prime focus. That's not to say you can't do something else. Uh, If I take myself as an example, and and, and you may or may not believe this, but I, I mean, I'm an administrator, I'm an organizer by nature. That's the way God's gifted me. I'm a, a leader. And so I work hard at doing that as well as I can in the power of the Spirit. Now, it so happens that God has also given me the gift of preaching. I can also lead some services. I can also do children's work. I can also listen to people. But those are not my prime gifts. I do those things when I have the time to do them. (laughs) It's one of the reasons I don't come here quite as often as I used to, because I have deliberately cut back my preaching engagement to concentrate on the thing that God has given me to do above all else. So it doesn't mean to say you can't do other things, but if I only had time to do one thing, what would be that one thing? And do it. 
work hard at it in the power of the Spirit. I came across a document recently, and it has these words, um, to, to somebody fulfilling a task in the church, to have a sense of calling by God to serve the church in whatever position it is, as your first and foremost responsibility. So what is it that's your first and foremost responsibility, serving God here in this church or wherever it is that you do serve God? What is it? And do it well. John Stott wrote, What is needed is the basic biblical recognition that God calls different men and women to different ministries. Calls different men and women to different ministries, and he wants us to do them well. The church needs leaders who will serve with humility and godly wisdom, and the church needs members who will serve wholeheartedly, following the leadership as they believe God is leading them and the church. And do it all for God's glory. Remember who it is you're serving. When you put the chairs out and bring the bread and wine for communion and switch on the PA, yes, you're doing it for the church. Of course you are. But primarily you're doing it for God. Whatever it is that it might be that you're asked to do, that's who you're doing it for. And that's the way the church will grow. That's the way the gospel will spread. That's the way you will play your part if you take all the gift that God has given you and use it in a way that really honors him, puts him first above all others. Let's take a moment to pray and then we're going to sing a hymn and then I'm handing back to Phil for communion. So let's take a moment to pray. Lord, thank you so much for the rich diversity of gifts in this church. Thank you for all these people who sit in front of me this morning, each of whom has a gift from you to use to serve you. Will you bless them in the use of it? Will you help each one of us to use the gifts that you've given us primarily to bring honor and glory to your name? And help us to use the particular gift that we have to serve you well. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the church that grew so dramatically. Lord, we long that your church might grow dramatically in these days too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.